This is the week. Uh, we were going to do this next Sunday, but because of the baptism, I bumped it back to this week. This is the week when we take a close look at the teaching of Jesus regarding end times. If you're a theologian, this teaching is sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. Particularly, I think it's the Gospel of Matthew. We find that Jesus is giving this teaching on the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley. Some of you have been to Israel. I haven't yet. Someday I hope to be there. Uh, and he's looking across the Kidron Valley, and they're talking about the temple. And in that context, Jesus gives some really important teaching about the future. I've called this message, Jesus Predicts the Future. Now, of all the prophets of Scripture, we know that the, the prophets who make up the Word of God were speaking through the Holy Spirit. We can trust what they have to say. But I, I pay particular attention now when it's Jesus, when it's the Son of God telling us about future events. This is a really, really crucial and important passage. So, um, just for the sake of time, we'll just begin reading part of this passage, starting in verse 5, Luke chapter 21, verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will pour, put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. We'll stop reading there, and I want to begin with the focus that our passage begins with, a focus on the temple. What we're referring to here is what some would call the second temple, some would call Herod's temple. If you know Old Testament history, you know that King David wanted to build a temple for the Lord his God. The place of worship up to the time of David was the tabernacle. It was a tent. And David, after becoming king and being able to build himself a beautiful home in the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, he says, wait a second, I, I've built myself a beautiful home made of cedar. I need to build God a permanent home. Prophet comes to David and says, no, you're not going to be the one to build it. Your son will build it. And so Solomon builds a temple to replace the tabernacle that's one of the most outstanding pieces of architecture that's ever been built. And the biblical descriptions of it are astounding. You can go online and look at artists. There's 
no photographs of it for some reason, but you can go online and look at artists' renderings of that and, and, and it's amazing and, and overlaid with gold and beautiful architecture and decorations. Then, of course, Israel falls into sin and unfaithfulness and they worship false gods. And because of that, they end up going into exile and the Babylonian Empire comes in and destroys the city of Jerusalem and completely pulls down the temple of Solomon and, and takes all of the gold that had overlaid its walls and its stones, all of its decorations, all of its implements of worship taken by the Babylonians until the time of Ezra, when we read about a remnant that comes back from Babylon and from the Persian Empire, and they're sent back, and before they even build the wall, they rebuild the temple, or at least a version of it. In Ezra chapter 3, we read that when they laid the foundation of that second temple, there was a huge celebration, but some people wept. People who were older, people who could still remember Solomon's temple, saw what appeared to be the beginnings of a much smaller, much less extravagant building, and they cried. And that was the temple that stood for hundreds of years, until the time of Herod. Herod was not actually even a true Jewish king. He was put in place by the Roman Empire. He was not Jewish in his religion. He didn't follow God or believe in God. In fact, he was a, a worshiper of himself and his, his own accomplishments. And so Herod, he's known as Herod the Great, took it upon himself to build massive structures. We think of some of the kings, the pharaohs of Egypt and the pyramids and the and the Sphinx, and all the things that those powerful kings did. Well, that's what Herod the Great did as this puppet king in Israel. He taxed the people of Israel so that he could build these huge structures. He thought to himself, he's a smart guy, if, if I'm going to tax the Jews to build massive, beautiful structures in the land of Israel, what building could I, could I build, could I pour money into that they'd they'd be willing to be taxed for. Well, he rightly guessed, well, that's the temple. And so Herod, this modest second temple that had been built in the time of Zerubbabel, of Ezra, now he beautifies it. And I've got a picture here. This is, uh, I think this is actually a picture of a model at a museum in Jerusalem. It's obviously very detailed. That structure in the middle, I'm not sure how well we can all see this, the structure in the middle, uh, the, the tall structure in the middle is the actual proper temple. Then the, uh, around that structure are the inner courts of the temple. And then this massive, huge complex all the way around the outside, 33 acres walled in. And you can imagine the side we're looking at, we're looking at it towards, we're facing the west here as we look at this picture. The Kidron Valley falls far below and it was 150 feet from the pinnacle of the temple down into that valley. Massive stones were used to build this structure and then the temple itself was rebuilt with some, something that was marble, something that was polished stone, it was white. Some, someone said that you could see the temple of Jerusalem from 30 miles away these beautiful white stones, and then overlaid with gold around the top. There was a cluster of grapes hammered out of gold. It was six feet tall, one of the decorations of the, of the temple that Herod built. 
What was he doing? Well, he was trying to, he was trying to mimic Solomon, wasn't he? Solomon, one of the great kings of Israel, Herod, was trying to make a name for himself. And this is the temple. This is the place where Jesus was in Luke 21. In fact, it's fascinating to think about the things that took place in this temple. This is where Satan brought Jesus to when it says that he put him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself off. It was probably this corner right in front of us here overlooking the Kidron Valley. Throw yourself off. This was the place where Jesus twice in his ministry came into the courts and threw over the tables of the people who were making money. I suspect probably in those outer courts. You can imagine Gentiles were allowed in those outer courts but not the inner courts. This was a tourist attraction. People would make money off of this. Herod wanted to make money off of this. Jesus turned those tables over. John's Gospel says he he braided a whip out of cords. He went into these courts. He chased those money lenders and those money makers away. He said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Think of that, the court of the Gentiles. Not a place to make money, not a a place to profit. This was where Jesus taught when he came to Jerusalem. He'd come into these courts. Sometimes they're even named in the gospel stories, which specific court he was in. In fact, uh, we know from the early verses of chapter 21 that he was in uh, the inner court uh, in front of the temple when he was watching people, the Jewish people, give their alms and their, their gifts. This was the place where the early church met. In the book of Acts, we know that the church, thousands of people would gather in large numbers. I can imagine Peter and the apostles standing up, maybe probably in those outer courts of the Gentiles, standing up so hundreds, thousands of people could hear them and preaching the gospel. It happened here. So what is the beginning of the story? The beginning of this story is how impressed the disciples were in verse 5. Matthew and Mark give a little bit more description about what they were saying. They're saying, look at these stones. Some of the stones that built that outer wall of the temple were massive. In fact, the biggest one they found, picture a school bus. Take another, and we're talking about a full-size school bus. Picture a school bus. Picture a second school bus side by side together, one stone, 570 tons. How they got those stones into the wall, I don't know. But it helps me understand why the disciples said to Jesus, look at these stones. And I get the impression, we're not really told this, but reading between the lines, I get the impression the disciples were really saying this to Jesus, Jesus, you don't seem very impressed with this building. In John chapter 2, when he had cleared the temple, he got into an argument with the religious rulers and he said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. The religious rulers assume he's referring to Herod's temple, which had been under construction, they say, they say it, John 2, for 46 years. Jesus, of course, it tells us, was referring to his own body. Which is interesting because in the ultimate fulfillment of all things, who's the temple? It's Jesus. God and Christ ultimately will be the sanctuary for the people of God. So the truth is Jesus wasn't terribly impressed 
with Herod's temple. It's obvious from the fact that twice over he went in completely uh, uh, threw over uh, the, the social and religious norms by driving people out and turning over the tables and getting the priests angry and, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders angry. I almost get the sense the disciples were saying, Jesus, how come you're not impressed with the temple? It was impressive. Jesus knew, of course, the reason it had been built. He knew who had built it. He knew the future. But for the disciples, it was this. For all the Jewish people, I believe the temple had become this. A source of identity and pride for the Jewish people. What did the disciples, what did the disciples believe was about to happen? They had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Which means that they believed that he was going to be a, both a religious and political ruler of Israel. He was the anointed one. They believed that any moment... He was going to inaugurate his kingdom. They'd seen his power. They knew he had the power to do it. They believed that he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. He was going to liberate the land of Israel. And they were going to rule with him. And they could probably just imagine themselves as his disciples. You know, the, the disciples, the servants of the great king of Israel. Standing in this temple now, in their royal robes, having power and authority. I'm sure that's what they imagined. It was a source of pride, even for the disciples. And Jesus, of course, is going to break the bad news to them first. We heard what he said. This is all going down. Not one stone left upon another. And we know from history, Jesus completely predicted the future. Forty years before it happened or so, Rome under Titus, because of several uprisings that were taking place between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire, they finally were fed up. They sent their troops in. They surrounded the city. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The temple was torn down brick on brick. That's history. And Jesus predicted it before it happened. You know, it makes me think, if you don't mind me just going down a brief rabbit trail, we have, as a church family, we have a pretty impressive building, don't we? I mean, this is by far the most impressive church building that I've been affiliated with. It's not why I took the job. But it's an impressive building. And I wonder how we think of that. Do we as members of the Wallenstein Bible Chapel church family, do we, do we take our identity or a sense of pride from this building? Do we, do we have a sense of pride that we built this? That, we, that we've paid for this? When we think of other churches in the area, do we compare ourselves and our building? And of course, I know that you know as I say these things how wrong and how foolish that would be. Because the church is not the building. This building is really a simple hammer in the hand of the great carpenter. That's all it is. It should be a tool that we use, that he uses to expand his kingdom. We don't take pride in this building. We don't, we don't place our identity in this building. We don't compare ourselves to other Christians in the area based on our building and we have a gym and we have a cafe. 
How foolish would that be? All that matters is what God is doing in the hearts of people. So let's use this building to make disciples. That's, that's what this building is for. But let's not find our identity or pride in this building. Back to the sermon. Jesus makes several predictions. The conversation opened up here because of this temple. The disciples taking great pride in the temple. Jesus not seeming too impressed by it. And he begins to make several predictions. The first one, verse 8. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. What does he mean by that? What he's saying is there will be many Jewish people, leaders who will come. And this is what they're going to say. Follow me. Follow me. I know the future. Follow me. Together we'll defeat the Romans. People who are trying to gather a group, a following to themselves. You'll notice what Jesus says. At the end of verse 8, he says, don't follow them. Do not follow them. Folks, we are so inclined to follow people. We are so inclined. In fact, even in this area of, of end times, it's amazing to, to me as Christians how we tend to find someone that we agree with in terms of these matters, and then we will follow them. We, we tend to favor certain preachers, certain pastors, certain TV evangelists. We are so inclined toward that. Be careful about that. Jesus is saying you're not going to find the answer in some person. If there is some religious leader, yes, even for us as evangelical Christians, who, who is trying to encourage you and trying to latch onto you and make you, uh, you his or hers, be careful about that. They're not the Messiah. They don't have all the answers. That's his first prediction. False messiahs, false leaders. Then he says there's going to be conflict, verses 9 and 10. Wars and uprisings. Nation rising against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Let me show you an example. And by the way, the question that the disciples asked him in verse 7, when will these things happen? What were they talking about? Well, they were asking about what Jesus had just been talking about, the destruction of the temple. So Jesus is answering them, literally, we would assume, he's answering them about that question, when is the temple going to be destroyed? So here's his second prediction. There's going to be conflict. So here's a, here's a description of some of the wars within the Roman Empire, some of them involving the Jewish people themselves, that would have been widely known in those 40 years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. I don't know the history on all of these, uh, as I said, number three and number six, there were multiple Jewish uprisings against the Roman Empire, culminating in those years 66 to 70, that led finally to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus predicted these things. Then he said there'd be fearful events. Verse 11, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, fearful events and great signs from heaven. Here's a list of in those same years, those 40 years, here's some of the natural disasters that took place in the known world within the Roman Empire. That world, word would have, they wouldn't have gotten immediate word of these things. They didn't have the internet. But over the days and weeks following, stories of these earthquakes and the volcano in Greece and the famine, of course, in the Roman Empire was known even in Scripture. Acts 11 tells us about that. The earthquake in Italy in 63. Gossip would have spread about these things. 
These were events that led up to the destruction of the temple. Signs from heaven, I'm not sure exactly what Jesus is referring to there. I'm not not sure if he's talking about meteorites. Uh, There's a lot of talk about meteorites in the news right now, and and, uh, it seems like a few times a year, you know, somewhere, someone gets on video, this flash of light of a meteor uh, torching through our atmosphere and bursting into flames. And, of course, in those days, people wouldn't have necessarily known what's the science behind that, what is actually happening. So I don't know what Jesus is referring to here. But even natural disasters, we can understand that God and his sovereignty is allowing these things to happen. And then he goes into this description of the persecution of his followers. By the way, some people want to take the Olivet Discourse and say, this is all about Israel. But that's not what Jesus is pointing to here. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to his followers who are the ones that we have come after. He's talking about persecution, and we can call it Christian persecution, because twice over in these verses, Jesus says, they're going to do this because because of my name. Not because you're Jewish, but because you're Jesus' people. That's why you're going to be persecuted. So we have to be careful not to just write all of this off and say, well, he's just talking to the Jews. No, he's talking to his disciples, And he goes into great detail, and of course, we know that much of this, all of this happened to the disciples within a very short order. James, brother of John, would be martyred, one of the first martyrs. Stephen would be martyred. The apostles would be thrown in jail. The apostle Paul would be stoned and thrown in jail. There's all kinds of things recorded in the book of Acts that are the fulfillment of these verses from the lips of Jesus, verses 12 to 19. History tells us this. Scripture tells us of the great persecution that the believers, the disciples and the believers that they won to Christ suffered leading up to the year AD 70 when the temple was destroyed and of course in all of the years following as well. Then he describes the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the great city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. By the way, you can read the history of the siege, the Roman siege against Jerusalem in AD 70. It's not a pretty story. And a siege, of course, will surround the city, and we're going to starve them. And there are many, many stories of thousands and thousands of people who died of starvation. People eating their own children. Can you imagine all of this predicted by Jesus? Verse 23, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and they will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And by the way, even to this day, the city of Jerusalem, even though we know that uh, the Jewish people have been restored to their land in the last century, they don't have the city of Jerusalem. They have part of it, but they don't have the whole city, and they certainly don't have the Temple Mount, do they? There's an Islamic mosque on that Temple Mount today. So even to this day, 
the city of Jerusalem has not been given back over to the people of Israel, which suggests to me that we are still in what Jesus referred to as the times of the Gentiles. What does this mean? Well, people have lots of different interpretations on this. As I've just said, seeing that the people of Israel have not had the city fully restored to them since AD 70, even to this day, I would argue that we're still in the times of the Gentiles. And in fact, that the times of the Gentiles will continue until the true king of Israel returns and sets up his throne in Jerusalem. Then we have a shift. Notice in verse 7, Jesus speaks about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. He's already described, he's already answered the question. The disciples wanted to know, when's the temple going to be destroyed? He's just described that in verses 20 to 24, the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. Then he says the city's going to continue to be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now he goes on with more description. So he's answered the question about the city and the destruction of the temple, but now he's got more predictions. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then this, at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. Here's what I want you to notice. He's described the destruction of the temple. He predicts a time of the Gentiles, which I would argue we're still in, we must still be in today. And then more predictions. Signs in the heavens. Notice it is now global perplexity. Ah. Verse 26, people will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. Notice the shift in language. Up to verse 24, we're talking about the city of Jerusalem. Notice verse 25, signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth, nations, will be in anguish and perplexity. People will faint from terror at what is coming on the world. At that time, they, the people of the world, will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Notice the shift here from very specifically about the city of Jerusalem, and now we have this global reality. This is the prediction of Jesus. The culmination of that is the second coming. Now, sometimes I think because we read of all of these difficulties and hardships and persecution mixed in with the prediction of the second coming of Jesus, we tend to not really celebrate the final promise of verse 27. This ultimately is the promise of Scripture that God will dwell with his people. Jesus, as the Son of God, is coming back. You remember in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends up from the disciples back into heaven and they stare up watching this and then these angels appear to them and say, why why are you guys staring up? This same Jesus will come in the same way on the clouds of heaven. 
Meaning, trust, believe that he's coming back. Be confident, be hopeful in that. But don't spend the rest of your life just gazing up and waiting. Like, we, we got some work to do here. We will live our lives, we will do, we will go, we will serve based on this wonderful reality that Jesus is coming again. We're not going to just sit around waiting. These are the predictions of Jesus. I want us to think in closing of five lessons that are really, really important that come out of this passage. And here's, here's the first one that's, I think, really important. It's true not just of this passage, it's true of many passages that refer to end times events and many generally prophetic passages in the Bible. And it's the idea here that there are layers of Bible prophecy. Jesus, in what we call the Olivet Discourse, is describing at one and the same time the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, as well as future events that will take place when he returns to earth. You say, well, I thought you said he was describing the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Yeah, but did you realize that at the very end of time, in the very final battle, before eternity is ushered in, Revelation chapter 20, sometimes known as the Battle of Armageddon, do you know what it is? It's armies of Gentiles surrounding the city of Jerusalem. It's a replay. It's, it's a foreshadowing. And so we have these layers where Jesus at one and the same time is literally and truthfully describing something that happened in history to us and something that is still future to us. That is the way Bible prophecy works. Another example is found in the book of Daniel. We don't have time to study this passage, but it's, it's a prediction about the Greek empire and one of the kings that would arise out of the third beast, the third empire that Daniel describes, which is Greece. After Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom is divided among his four generals. That's really interestingly spelled out by Daniel. But one of the kings that ends up in North Africa, the king of the south he's known as, comes up to Jerusalem and desecrates the temple. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. For us, from our perspective, he's in the history. He's history. From Daniel's perspective, he was future. Daniel was describing an event that was going to happen literally in the time of the Greek Empire before the Roman Empire. But at the same time, he was describing the Antichrist of the future. There's this layer, there's these two lenses, and he's truthfully and accurately describing both. It's the very same reason that in Isaiah 7, one of the favorite prophecies we quote at Christmas time, Isaiah prophesied that the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and we assume he was just talking about Jesus. No, he was actually, in his time, he was referring to some other woman who gave birth to a son. But it was a layered prophecy because when Jesus comes along, God, through the Holy Spirit, says, Did you, you remember that prophecy? Isaiah thought he was talking about one thing, he was, 
But he was also talking about another thing because prophecy has a way of foreshadowing. Prophecies are layered in the Bible. That is why Jesus, in one description, can describe something that literally happened 40 years later, and in the same sermon, the same description, he's talking about his second coming, which still hasn't happened 2,000 years later. It's really important that we understand this. See, we get into trouble when we read a Bible prophecy and we say, no, this, this can, and this is what some people do. They say the Olivet Discourse is only about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so they kind of have to explain away the second coming stuff. So in a sense, some people say, in a sense, Jesus came back in AD 70. That doesn't really make sense in my mind. Other people say, no, this isn't about AD 70 at all. This isn't about the destruction of Jerusalem. This is totally about the end times. Well, that violates some of the very obvious descriptions that Jesus gave to a question that was about the destruction of the temple. So we have to understand the, the layered reality of Bible prophecy. I know that's a bit of a tricky concept, but it's really important. Then Jesus says that we have to discern the times. Verse 29, he told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. It's also important to notice that um, he had described things that would be initial, initial challenges. Look at verse 9. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. He says, these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Remember, he's still speaking there of the destruction of Jerusalem. In one of the other passages that describes Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives, it describes the suffering that Jesus talks about here, the, the pestilence, the natural disasters. It, it calls them birth pangs, which is very interesting. My wife and I have had, had five kids, and I'm by no means a, uh, an expert on childbirth. But I know about something called Braxton Hicks. Is that the right word? Am I impressing you ladies? I really hope I am. <laughs> My wife had these things. And she went, I think she went to the doctor a time or two with something called Braxton Hicks. It was uh, fairly minor, I say minor, labor pains that would come sporadically, but it wasn't true labor. And what, I think what Jesus is describing here, there's, there's these bad things that are going to happen in the world. They're going to happen first. It's not the end. It's actually a gift from God to remind us that this terrible pain is coming. It's possible that COVID-19 has been that, has been a gift from God to remind us that this world is heading for labor. And of course, everyone who's been through childbirth knows that you go to the hospital when uh, when it's not Braxton Hicks anymore, but when those contractions are severe enough and close enough together, right? I don't know how, how, how close to, together they have to be. I can't remember. But when those things start happening more frequently and when, when those pains and troubles begin to get compressed, that's what Jesus is saying, I believe. That's when you know we're getting closer and closer. I think it's important for us to realize that one of the problems with the Christian church in North America is that we have been able to be at ease. We have been at ease 
for decades. Oh, World War II was, was awful. That was awful for the whole world. But boy, after that, it was the baby boom and financial boom. And, and now we've lived through a time where, I'll never forget 10 years ago, the, the tsunami in Japan. I mean, I watched that over and over and, and people running and being engulfed by the water or the, the earthquake in Haiti, what, six, seven years ago. And these things are happening. These, these things remind us that we're, we are headed for a terrible time in this world. But the problem for us is that we have an event like that and then we go back to being at ease. Everything's fine. That's actually what we hope for in terms of this pandemic. Me too. I hope that this passes, that the pain ends, that we can get back to normal. But the truth is, when we're really getting close to the, to the return of Christ to the earth, those things aren't going to end. It, it's going to be compressed. It's just going to be, we're, we're going to be right in the midst of this. So for example, if, if we went right from COVID, if say one of the variants became really bad and we just had to start all, can you imagine if we had to start all over again? If, if, if some financial crash happened at the end of COVID, if, if we just went from one thing to the next, that is a sign that we're getting really close to the second coming of Christ to the earth. And ultimately we know the Bible describes a time of tribulation. Discern the times. What are the times that we're living in? The pains that we go through and the difficulties that we see on the earth are reminders that we are marching, marching, marching towards the return of Jesus. We don't know exactly when it will be, but we need to be ready. And that's the third thing, the certainty of Christ's return. The certainty of his return. The Bible ends with a little prayer, come Lord Jesus. I wonder if that's our prayer. I mean, honestly, folks, what do we really want on June 20th, 2021? What do we really want as believers? We want COVID to end. We want to have a good summer. We want life to be back to normal. Is that what we really want? Or do we want Jesus to come back? I mean, honestly, ask yourself that question. What do we really want? How foolish it would be for us to want anything if we're true followers of Jesus than to see him face to face and to be in his presence. It's, it's a certainty. And the certainty of Christ's return is meant to fuel us for the way that we live now. Uh, when I was in high school, there was a social event taking place. And I asked my dad. My dad's watching. Happy Father's Day, Dad. He always watches. I asked my dad, can I go? And my dad was really wise about this, a little sneaky, but, but he was wise because he didn't want to make the decision for me. He said, well, I'm going to let you decide, but, but you answer me this. If Jesus comes when you're there, what are you going to say to him? Now, I don't know if that's good parenting for everyone. That worked for me. <laughs> that worked for me. Because my conscience and my heart was too sensitive to, to have to face that reality. That if I go and engage in something that maybe, maybe the Lord wouldn't have been pleased with, and my dad let me make the decision, but that was his question. What if Jesus comes back? How much does that guide our lives, our decisions? Our decisions with our money, our decisions with our time, 
the reality that at any moment we could be standing in the presence of Jesus. He's coming back. It's certain. And so Jesus, number fourth, fourthly here, he describes the need for us to be vigilant. Verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. And here again we see the global perspective. It will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus taught this, be watchful. Live, live every moment as if it could be your last. That's a cliche, but Jesus taught it. Live every moment in light of the return of the King. Be vigilant, be ready, be watchful. I mean, that's a great question for us to ask. If someone followed us around and watched the way that we live for the, just for the rest of today, would there be anything they see in us that would suggest that the time is short? Would they see any kind, of a, any kind of earnestness in us in terms of our own faith, in terms of sharing our faith, in terms of, in terms of living for the future, for eternity? Or would they see us fully settled into this world, just enjoying the ease that North American life has brought to us. No, we need to be vigilant and watchful and ready. And then finally, this one. We just read this verse. That you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Are we ready to stand before Jesus? Now we know from Scripture Philippians 2 tells us that because of what Jesus has done, because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that the Father has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's just the truth. The question is, will we be able to stand before Christ? You say, well, I think I'm going to fall down and worship. Yeah, good. That's what we will do. But that's not the point here. The point is, will we stand before Christ? Or will we fall before Christ and worship? Or will we remain in the presence of Christ as his child? Or will we, because of his vast holiness and our sinfulness, be thrust from his presence away from him for all eternity? That's really the question that Jesus is asking us to consider here. Will you be able to stand before the Son of Man? It's not about whether you're going to fall down or dance or pray or sing. It's, it's will you be able to remain in the presence of Christ? There is not a human being in this world who's worthy to stand before Christ. There's not a person in this room, there's not a person on this platform who is worthy to stand before Christ. We are all wretched sinners, worthy of only, in ourselves, worthy only of the judgment of God. But the grace of God and the good news of God is that he has made a way for us to stand before the Son of God, fully redeemed and forgiven, washed clean by the blood of of our own king 
through his death on the cross. So we just got to ask ourselves right here this morning, because I know in, in a church like Wallenstein, there are people who've attended here for years. There are people who were basically born into this church. You were raised in this church. But the truth is, you are not ready to stand before Christ. You think that because you were born into a Christian family, you're okay. You think because you come to a church like Wallenstein, you're okay. You think because you read your Bible sometimes, you're okay. The question is, have you surrendered your life? Have you cried out for salvation through Jesus Christ? That is the only way that we can stand before Christ. And by the way, our schools our lunchrooms, our neighborhoods are full of people who are not ready to stand before Christ. This world is full of millions and billions of people who are not ready to stand before Christ. That's why the angel said, don't stand here gazing upward. Get to work. Tell people about Jesus. Can we sing less? <clears throat> for Jesus, for the good news, for salvation. I pray, Father, that you would forgive me for so many times when I've failed to live in light of your coming, when I've settled into life on earth and failed to see all that was needed around me. Give us eyes to see people the way you see them, Lord. Eyes to see people who are not ready to stand before you. And I pray, Father, for our own souls, our hearts, that you would help us to cast off the false gods, the things that hinder us and get in our way, and the sins that beset us. And just give us hearts of passion, Lord, for Jesus Christ, longing to see him and to live faithfully to him until we, for him until we do. Would you make this true of Wallenstein Bible Chapel, I pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for being here. Look forward to seeing you for Baptism Sunday next week.